I was just going to say, I guess you said a lot of different people can define it. I'm most interested in how my students define their success, right? That's a good um, point. So one thing I'd, I'd really like to see in terms of the research around alternative grading is more leaning into this area of SOTL known as uh, students as partners, where students really get involved in the research um, and not just at filling out a, a survey or as a participant, but at really crafting the research questions and the methodology. Have not seen much of that in terms of this research into alternative grading, but I think that would be a, a big benefit in terms of really phrasing this question of what are these benefits? Well, let, let's try and get students to tell us these things and then let them lead us, lead us to that. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning. From traditional grading to met- alternative methods of grading, we'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello, and welcome back to the Grading Podcast. I'm Robert Bosley, one of your hosts, and with me today, Sharona Krinsky, your other co-host, and we have another guest with us today. So let's start us off. Sharona, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's been a little bit of a wild ride this week. We are recording this when the California Faculty Association just suddenly ended our strike due to reaching a tentative agreement. And as we were chatting about it, it was a little rough to find out at nine o'clock at night that I was supposed to go back and teach the next day. So that was a little tough, but how about you, Buzz? And at the time of this recording, this was your first week back, where I've been back at my high school part for a couple of weeks now. This was supposed to be your first week, and like you said, there was a a labor action that was supposed to go for a week and ended up going for barely one day before they... And 12 hours notice, so that was interesting. But the good news is I'm set. I've got my course designed. That's one of the great things about this alt grading thing is it forced me to become so much more organized that I'm able to turn it on and turn it off on kind of on a dime. So that works really well. Hmm. But I do want to, or do you want to introduce our new? <laughs> next no, I, I was just, I was just going to ask you that we're, it's not just the two of us here. So you want to introduce our returning guest Absolutely. So Dr. I believe it's Dr. Andrew Lewis, although I know you as Drew. So Dr. Drew Lewis is joining us again in the virtual studio. You might have heard him on the pod a couple weeks ago talking about team-based inquiry learning with Dr. Stephen Klontz. But we asked Drew to come back because he's got some other really, really exciting projects going on. I did want to read a couple of his projects. We know he does the team-based inquiry learning. He also works with us as an organizer of the grading conference. But he's also involved in the Data Science and Social Justice Networks Policy and Education Program, and also as well as has been participating in a workshop about educating at the intersection of data science and social justice. Those all sound really exciting. And I don't know, maybe we maybe have to have you on again to talk about statistics and data science. But another area that you've been very influential in this area is in the science of teaching and learning research aspects with related to all grading. So welcome back, Drew. I'm excited to talk to you today about your research. Yeah, it's great to be back. Fantastic. I love having these kind of discussions because one of the things that I know I get a lot in my trainings, a lot of the pushback I get is, you know, I'm able to show literally over a hundred years worth of research on what's wrong with traditional grading. There's not as much research out there that can really point at the success and the value added that alternative grading can do when done right. So I'm really thrilled. Also, you were on a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, I was not there. So this is my first time with you in the studio of the new year, even though we've worked a little bit on the conference since the beginning of the year, but I'm glad to 
be back with you here this time. And sorry, I missed the last one. So Drew, why don't you give us a little bit of your background as far as what led you to starting to do some of your research into this area and what have you done? Where are you going with the research side? Yeah, I guess I got started with this when I was working at the University of South Alabama. Our teaching center put together a workshop one summer on scholarship of teaching and learning, and I never heard of this, but it sounded interesting. So I went to it and learned a little bit about how you actually do some of this Sotl or Sotl, I'm not sure which camp y'all are in as to how to pronounce that. Um, yeah, and so this workshop was led by Jen Freiberg from Illinois State. He's a fantastic leader in the Sotl community. And so I was kind of learning about what this field is and how you do this kind of work. And there have been some questions that have been bouncing around in my head for the reasons Boz was mentioning that, you know, there's not a ton of great research out there about the different flavors of alternative grading and what their effects are on students, right? We know that they're probably better on theoretical basis, but we don't have really a ton of really great, I don't want to say hard research, but real thorough research, right? Kind of laying these things out. Um, so that's really where I kind of got started in all of this. That begs the question that people are asking us, okay, you've shown us traditional grading's bad. Is this really better? So what have you discovered? What have you done? What's it been like going on this journey? One of the things that when you do read a lot of these papers, people will point to a lot of things that their students say about why it's better, right? So we've heard a lot of these things that students say things like, oh, it's less stress for me. I, I'm less anxious. But as I was reading lots of these papers and my students were telling me the same things, and as I started learning about this field of scholarship and teaching and learning, I'm like, well, anxiety is like this really big nebulous thing, right? What do they mean when they say they're less stressed or they're less anxious? And as I thought about it a little bit, I'm like, well, it probably has to do with this notion of math anxiety or test anxiety or something like this. In math education, math anxiety is a big thing they have to worry about. It impacts a lot of students, right? They have poor first experiences, early experiences with math, and they stick with them, and it really impacts their learning. Um, and then test anxiety, similarly, a lot of students have anxiety induced by just taking tests and this actually impacts their performance and it really raises questions of, of whether this test is actually a valid measure of their, of their learning. Um, so one of my first uh, projects is really thinking about this idea of okay I, I think when students tell me that they are less anxious this has something to do with test anxiety. So did a, a couple studies around that getting started trying to really pinpoint okay well psychologists have this kind of construct of test anxiety in their actual um, measures, instruments that they can use to actually measure this in students. So why don't we actually get one of these and give it to students and see if that actually does help their test anxiety. And did it? Yeah. So this, <laughs> so this and, uh, Or uh, is it published or where are we? Yeah. yeah so the first time uh, I did this, I just thought really simply, okay, I've got some students who are doing a standard-based grading course. I'm going to give them this instrument at the beginning of the semester, and then I'm going to give it to them at the end of the semester. And so what do you think happened with their test anxiety when I did that? Hopefully it, it went down if <laughs> what we think is true is actually true. Yeah. Well, actually, the exact opposite of that happened. So their hmm. test anxiety went up from the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester. Interesting. And yeah. That, that's exactly what I said, right? Because I was going into this saying, oh, yeah, it's going to go down and we can wave this around saying, like, see, look, standards-based grading really does lower students' test anxiety. And so, well, but this is what my data said, right? So I, I published a, a paper with it. But as I was thinking about how to interpret this, I'm like, you know what? At the beginning of the semester, all of their anxiety is going to be lower. And at the end of the semester, whatever kind of anxiety they ask about is probably going to be higher in general. So I was really wondering, okay, when I'm asking them this survey at the end of the semester, are they really thinking about the standards-based grading class or are they thinking about all of their classes? So then I went back and did another experiment, same thing at the beginning of the semester. And at the end of the semester, I had them fill the survey out twice. So first thinking about their other classes and then thinking about the standards-based grading class. And now when I did that, if you looked at their other classes, the test anxiety was higher than the beginning of the semester, but with their standards-based grading classes, it was lower than the beginning of the semester. 
See, and that, that would make sense because you're right. If we're just talking about the beginning of a semester versus the end of a semester with just the fact that you're coming to the end of a semester, the pressure of grades and everything else, that makes sense that that first one kind of came up with these results that were counterintuitive to what we expected. Yeah, I think it really does tell, tell a great kind of story though, right? That this anxiety is natural, well, maybe not naturally, but like in the traditional grading setup, we maybe expect it to increase. And now we're actually getting that going in the opposite direction. So it's actually decreasing over the course of the semester. But it speaks to the necessity of the precision of the measurement instrument, right? Because what we saw the first time we asked the question wasn't, it, it was not disaggregated. And that's a problem because it went up and we're like, oh my gosh, kudos to you for going ahead and publishing data that seemed to disagree with what you were hoping, thinking was going to happen. So. Yeah, I am a little annoyed now. Every time somebody cites the first paper, I want to like track them down and wave the second paper at them and say, no, 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 look, got to read this too. (laughs) Kind of like when people misquote famous literature, they're like, if you actually read the poem, that's not what it's saying. Like exactly. my favorite one is what is it? Good fences make good neighbors. So where did you go from there? So I know that's not the end of the research that you've done. I think I've seen both of those and I have some thoughts because I'm in the middle of some research myself, but where did you go from there? Well, I think that second one is the most recent subtle paper I've written on uh, I thought you also grading. wrote one on achievement theory, tying, if not research, at least posing the question. Mm, yeah, so that was, that was in that that second paper. Um, okay. So that was that was looking at this other um, idea that you read a lot about that that people will say that oh one of the, one of the reasons we do this alternative grading is because we think it promotes a growth mindset. So this idea that intellect is malleable, it's not fixed, we can learn things, we don't have a a fixed mode of intelligence. And there's lots of good reasons why we think alternative grading should support this. But again, I was reading some of this stuff and I'm like, well, there's some very short instruments actually that you can use to kind of measure these kinds of things. And so one of the things that I did in that same study in that paper was give them this, this growth mindset instrument. I think it's like seven questions. You just Google Carol Dweck growth mindset instrument. You can find it. And uh, this is another one of those interesting things about the the precision of the question you're asking, because we didn't see any change in the growth mindset over the semester using this instrument. And so I think why we saw that is because these questions are really generic. If you read the prompts, there's something like, I don't, trying to remember off the top of my head, but really like, I can learn things if I put my mind to it. So there's nothing really specific in there about the the particular course or context or anything. Um, And so when I started doing a little bit more reading about this whole idea of growth mindset, I came across this idea in the psychology literature of of achievement goal orientation. Um, This is related to where this whole idea of growth mindset came about in, in the 80s. The idea is that there's maybe two kinds of goal orientations that people have. One of them is called mastery goals, and one of them is called performance goals. So in a mastery goal, it would be like a student trying to learn something, basically, because they want to learn something, and that's why they're interested in doing it. And a performance goal would be they're trying to do it just to meet this kind of external threshold, like earn a grade or something that they need. Um, to go on. And then further, these get divided along a, a different axis of uh, approach versus avoidance goals. So it's it's almost a, a trying to succeed versus trying to avoid failure. Psychologists have been doing a lot of, lot of research around these goal orientations, and they tend to find that the mastery goals have better outcomes for students versus the performance goals, as we might expect. But also the um, approach goals tend to have better outcomes versus the avoidance goals. Trying to succeed tends to be correlated with other outcomes we like, like student success more than the avoidance goals. Um, So you can probably see how this kind of ties in with the the whole idea of of growth mindset. I wrote something with Jay Elsinger for that Primus special issue a few years back, and one of the things we argued was that 
hey, we kind of think that standards-based grading should help foster mastery goals and approach goals more than the performance goals and, and the avoidance goals. And so I tried to measure this when I did that study. So I gave them this achievement goal orientation survey to try and look at how that actually ended up playing out over the semester. Now, that's interesting, Sharona, because haven't you also done some work with trying to measure both growth mindset and achievement goal? Yeah, actually, and this is actually based on Drew's paper. So in the CLIMB grant, I've been working with uh, Dr. Dina Verdin, our researcher, and we've been discussing because we're doing a lot of actual instrument development, like we're combining different instruments to try to measure. The main thing she was trying to measure is, does this type of grading impact a student's engineering mindset? So their self-identification as an engineer. And also within that, looking at does it impact growth mindset and does it impact achievement theory goals? And we're getting some really inconclusive data, but some interesting data. So we're having trouble getting statistically significant results because we're really having trouble getting our pre and post surveys complete. They're just, the the numbers are are too small. Despite the fact that we're doing this with hundreds of students, we're just having trouble getting that response. But what we did find at one point in the data, but that seems to have disappeared, is there seems to be a bunch of things that are conflicting with each other. So, for example, in one of our control groups, just being in these engineering classes seemed to increase fixed mindset. So just without the grading, without anything, fixed mindset went up. And then when we did our piece when we did the the non-control, the part that was the students who were getting the standards-based grading, the growth mindset didn't increase, but the fixed mindset also did not increase. So whereas before we had a statistically significant increase in fixed mindset, that disappeared. So how do you conclude when you have these countervailing factors Like, it's a good thing that we went from a statistically significant result of something we didn't want to no significance. That's a good thing. But we haven't seemed to crack the growth mindset piece of it. It's not significantly strong. And I think that part of that is the measurement tool. So we shifted into looking at the achievement goal and we went a step further. We didn't just do the mastery versus the performance But we did actually dig into separating with the performance avoidance. And then we asked some questions that took it a step further. And this wasn't the actual goal, but we asked if they felt that their classroom supported a mastery goal or a performance goal. So it was like taking it a step away from what their personal goals are, because there can be a lot of things that influence what someone's personal goals are and asked about the classroom environment. And that's where we kind of saw preliminary data that looked very interesting, that if the classroom promoted a mastery goal structure, there was a stronger significant correlation with some of the things we wanted. But what was interesting is all the students in this particular study were in different sections and different instructors' versions of standards-based grading. So to have this wide variation in student perceptions of the classroom environment was very interesting. What I feel like we're starting to tease out is standards-based grading or alternative grading may be necessary but not sufficient because even once you redesign, you might still not be hitting all of the necessary things you need to have to get the results we want when it comes to things like growth mindset, mastery goal versus performance goals. Like you have to be really intentional and really consistent with your implementation based on the four pillars. And the further away you are, even though you've gone to standards based, it's problematic. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I agree. Um, but I guess I'd also say that we may be talking about one other classes, right? So we are, trying to send these messages in one class and now they have three or four other classes with a more traditional approach that that's kind of counteracting this right and and it's not just that 
you've had them for one semester, likelihood yes. is they've had traditional grading for anywhere from 13 to 15 years before you guys got them. Because, I mean, I, the engineering classes you're talking about, Sharon, are what, sophomore juniors? Yeah, sophomores and juniors. And they are in sequence. So there was a hope that we could get some longitudinal and see what would happen after one or two semesters. Unfortunately, our data collection has been so difficult that we are just not going to get that data. We can't enroll enough students, even with incentives, to participate and respond. So we're going to be looking for other ways of looking at it. But disaggregating this when they have one or two classes of this style and other classes that are not is very difficult, which leads to my next question is this just not measurable? And if it's not measurable in a sort of a traditional research format, does that mean we shouldn't be doing it because we can't prove it works? Well, I guess I'd say, I think you and I tend to come at this, you know, we're trained as mathematicians, right? So we love our quantitative methodologies because we can, you know, uh, there, there's this XKCD, right? That, oh, look, if I, if I assign a number to it, I can make it data and then I can do math to it, right? It's great. <laughs> Which is what would they call um, traditional grades as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one thing I've kind of taken away from doing this is that it's really messy and that what I think would be helpful is really leaning on qualitative methodologies. So instead of trying to build big samples and trying to get a small but significant movement in one of these scales, really lean on things like interview data with students and, and their experiences in these courses. Because as an instructor, I can I can tell you names of students who I have seen this kind of structure have a huge impact on that. I, I don't think they would have been as successful if I had been doing traditional grading, but this kind of structure right, gave them the space for that. Um, that's not going to show up on our, on our lovely quantitative studies. But I think with a nice rich qualitative methodology would be able to, to capture some of that and then make a, make a compelling case um, that, that this is really helping these students. I would agree. And I think that's a place that maybe we need to look at going and trying to get some of that qualitative done. What do you think about this classroom mastery goal structure concept? Like the classroom environment and its impact on student success in this i think everything we do in that classroom is, is going to affect this um i i think it's also hard to really kind of isolate um we want to study one particular thing when we're trying to design these studies but it's really hard to maybe disentangle that from all the other things that are going on in in the classroom um, so we may have an instructor that says i'm doing alternative grading which is great but Maybe they're just lecturing at their students the whole rest of the time. So maybe they're getting some conflicting things there. If it's a really, really passive kind of classroom experience, even if they have this alternative grading structure. So I think it's one thing that instructors can do, but it's not like a, a silver bullet that's going to make all these, all these problems better. It's one part of what you do involving grading. You want to think about this, but then the whole rest of what you do as an instructor, you want to really be thinking there about, okay, what can I do to make my classroom a more active and inclusive classroom? Go ahead, I think that's a really good point that doing alternative grading alone isn't necessarily going to fix a, a lot of issues we have in academia. And I know, especially in the K-12 world and a lot of places that we've seen it being forced top down, they think, oh, if we just do this, everything else will be fixed. And we're seeing it fail a lot because it was top down and because it was just without a lot of training, without a lot of forethought here, let's try this alternative format. And without really understanding what traditional grading does and why it has issues. And I think you've brought this up before, Sharona. What happens is you end up recreating those same issues with your alternative structure and in some cases can even make it much worse i've seen a particular one and i'm not going to mention names but yeah when they adopted uh, alternative grading which back then was called mastery grading it it was so much worse for his students but even done right it alone i don't think is you know necessarily the silver bullet but 
I know for me, and I know this is true for you as well, Sharon, because you've said it several times. It's the thing that made a lot of the other stuff we were trying to do, a lot of the other pedagogies that we were trying to do, actually come together. That's exactly what I was going to say. You said, Drew, that the alternative grading and then the lecturing flip that on its head and do active learning with traditional grading. I felt like such a failure because I could not make active learning work. I read the research. I heard all this stuff about these great, great classrooms and I couldn't do it. I mean, I was doing it and it was still better, but it was not having the impact. And then when I flipped the switch on the grading, those two things came into alignment. And I think that that's really important and works. And then the other thing you were saying, Boz, about it being done wrong is there's two areas that I think are very, very, very important to think about when you're looking at this and when we're looking at the research. Number one, what other things are impacting the classroom? So I'm thinking in particular, for example, one flavor of alternative grading, although they want alternative grading to be a flavor of them, is what we would call ungrading or contract grading or anything where it's so student-centered that the student is proposing the grade. Tremendous problems with implicit bias and student identity issues coming into play. And we've already seen documentation about certain groups of students underrepresenting what they, their grades should be and other groups of students overrepresenting. So we already know that that's a very big potential problem. But even with some of the more instructor-centric grades, such as standards-based or specifications, if you set the bar at the wrong place, that's going to be damaging because you can set your bar for what acceptable work is and you're working with freshmen and you set the bar at a graduate level. <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. And then what about our disciplines? I'm concerned that I have seen quite a bit specifically within mathematics, but I suspect it's pervasive either through all STEM or through all academia that an instructor really truly believes they want all students to succeed, but they define success as doing the things the way that they did them in the time they did them and the pace they did them. So they have a narrow definition of what success means. And if we're trying to do this research to say, is this better for students without defining better, are we talking about they pass better? Well, is the pass bar at the right place? Does it mean they get better grades at a final grade? Well, who decides what those are? Like, what do we mean? Is it that they identify more as an engineer? What do we mean by better? And I'm concerned about that when we, as we try to move forward with this research. I think that's another reason to be advocating for more qualitative methods here. So when we're talking with students, I mean, even we think about the quantitative methodology and really coming at this, it's like, I think this is better because of test anxiety. So I'm giving them a test anxiety instrument to try and measure that. But there's a lot more open-ended approaches we could use with different interview formats to really get more at some of these benefits. I mean, I think to some extent we see some of this when we look at what students tell us on the student opinion of instruction things. This is where we get some of these ideas, but I think more and more of these qualitative studies, I think kind of exploring the, the various benefits for students, I think would, would be really helpful. The other thing that is coming to mind right now is why do we do the research? Because for me, there's sort of two different things. Number one, I want to know for myself, am I doing right by my students? So I would prefer to be using evidence-based practices in general, whether it's care-based instruction or active learning, whatever. I want to do right by my personal students. But there's another piece here, which is defending my practices to others. And, and that's where it's getting a little bit sticky for me because the measures that they want to use to define better are not necessarily the measures that I think are the right measures. So do we let that kind of thing influence our research? 
or not. For example, in my institution, all they really care about is DFW rates. And I, I don't think that's the appropriate measure. I think having students actually learn something is maybe a better measure. But what do we do with that? Should we be trying to address that through SOTL? Or should we just say that's not what SOTL is for? So we can try and use some scholarship to address this. We can use other methods to address it. And we can also direct our SOTL efforts for other purposes as well, and not just for the advocacy part of it. I I do think this question of audience is, is really interesting. So if you're advocating within your institution to administrators, they're really focused on those things like DFW rates and depending on your institution, four-year or six-year graduation rates. Um, but if if I'm doing this thing and I end up helping a student that wasn't going to graduate, now they graduate in seven years, to me, that's a huge win. That's not going to show up on these statistics that some administrators are, are overly focused on. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, right? Just because it doesn't show up in, in those statistics. Yeah, and then when you look at the K-12 world, and how would you define what good is, what is better? Because of the disconnect between the K-12 and college, I would personally define some of the success for a K-12 program is what kind of rates of students going to college and success in college. That is something that for at least here in California, and I don't know too many other places that isn't, that is extremely hard to track. So we we deal with the pass rates and we don't have the W, but the DNF rates like you guys do in the um, higher ed. But there are definitely other characteristics of success that exactly how do you measure because of how disconnected our two worlds are right now, how these very different systems between K-12 and higher ed. Why is there such a divide and a disconnect between these? I've never understood. But because of that, that really makes that research for, you know, the K-12 world a whole lot more difficult to do. But I do think you're right, Shona, about defining what that word actually means, like what is good or success, because you're right. That can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And depending on how you define it and what measuring tool you're using, you get a lot of different results. I guess you said a lot of different people can define it. I'm most interested in how my students define their success. That's a good um, point. So, what, so one thing I'd really like to see in terms of the research around alternative grading is more leaning into this area of subtle known as uh, students as partners, where students really get involved in, in the research and not just filling out a, a survey or as a participant, but really crafting the research questions and the methodology. have not seen much of that in terms of this research into alternative grading. And I think that would be a, a big benefit in terms of really phrasing this question of, okay, what are these benefits? Well, let, let's try and get students to tell us these things and, and let them lead us, lead us to that. Well, isn't that one of the characteristic, characteristics of um, Dr. Ashley Fox's research? Isn't she... Part of her research looking Mm -hmm. at how students identify as authors or writers or something like that? She's doing that, but she's also actually, I believe, doing some of the students' as partners work in that she, I believe she engaged some of her students, and I think Emily Pitts-Donahoe did too, where they actually engaged students to participate in the writing and the creation of the research. So I I think that's true. I'm not 100% sure on Dr. Fox, but I know that Emily Pitts-Donahoe did that. Definitely need more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm going to add a layer though, because Drew, you said you're most interested in how your students do. I'm personally interested in my personal students, but because I'm a faculty development trainer by nature, like that's my personal big goal. I actually want to know how this is working for faculty in part because I think it's so important. I don't personally need to be convinced. I'm good. Like I understand other people want research. I'm good. I'm convinced. I have 9,000 students to back it up. I'm good. I want to get more people to do this, which means I need to understand the impact on faculty of going through this. And that's what my research is focused on, which is currently in the very small stages of 
we've been working on this grant with nine faculty members and there's so much rich information. So it really is qualitative with nine people. You can't do anything quantitative, but it's hard. This work is emotionally difficult because it challenges so many beliefs that we don't even realize we have. And the temptation to be, especially as STEM faculty, that there's a right way to do this. <laughs> and the number of times I have to say that there's no one right way, as long as we want you to be as close as you can to the four pillars. But if you get the four pillars, we're good. And you can define the four pillars very broadly. It's emotional. It's hard. You will screw it up the first time, which is devastating in some ways for an instructor. I mean, when you get to week 15 and you have 300 quizzes to grade, it's just, it's, it's, it's literally soul crushing. And very few people I know have tried it, really tried it and gone away from it. I know some people who say they've tried it. And when you dig in, you're like, yeah, I see why you went back. But how do we get the research so that we can actually design correct or proper or good faculty development programs. I mean, you, you're struggling with this with the TBIL, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't view this as a challenge that's unique to alternative grading. I think this is just a, a broader thing in terms of uh, faculty development. So faculty and, and teachers are, are busy people with lots of different demands on them, so they want or they, they need us to, to be able to do this in an efficient manner. So thinking about ways to, I guess going back to your question, how do I convince them that this is kind of the thing? Um, well, I, not even just convince, how do I actually train them? Because I feel like the first time that we did, Bosley and I did our training, we skipped the traditional grading piece. What's wrong with traditional grading? Because we knew we had a team that was already bought in. And we've discovered that it doesn't matter how bought in you are, you have to have that piece because if you don't know what's wrong, you have real trouble avoiding it. So in addition to the best practices in faculty development overall, I do think figuring out the specific content pieces of an effective course redesign for alternative grading is important. And, and that's where a lot of my research is focusing right now. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I think about a lot is trying to make sure that that faculty are, are on board with the underlying principles and understand that you kind of alluded to this earlier that, oh, you may be doing this, but if you don't understand why you're doing it, you may not be able to recognize when you have kind of turned one of the dials too far one way or the other, right? To get, to get one of those metaphors. Um, but if you're really grounded in, in kind of the, the philosophy, and this is one thing that I like about the, the four pillars, right? Understand why these are the, the pillars around which we're basing these things and you can kind of identify when things start start moving off the rails and, and change something rather than just kind of following this bundle of practice that you picked up in your faculty development workshop. There's one thing that uh, Jesse Stommel likes to say a lot is that ungrading is not just a, a collection of practices and I, I think that applies in a sense to other forms of alternative grading. If you're not really bought in on that underlying philosophy, then you're not going to be able to, to really use all those various practices and get them tuned and adjusted to your students, your population of students, your institutional norms. So two things along those lines. Number one, I have just added a new piece to my trainings where I do talk about or ask people to think about what is their grading philosophy and what is their grading purpose? What's the purpose of their grades? And what do they believe about them? And the other thing is really starting to ask yourself, do you really honestly, truly believe that all of your students can and should succeed? There's a lot of resistance to that in STEM because a number of times we get, but the bridge is going to fall down, but the surgeon is going to kill somebody. It's like, <sighs> you are a freshman general education class or you are calculus one. Is it really your job to make sure that the bridge doesn't fall down? Or is it your job to let students have an opportunity to finally get the stuff correct? And I personally, when I taught in traditional grading, was much less confident in my students' final ability to do things correctly than I am now, even though they get more chances now, but I'm holding them to a higher accuracy standard than I used to. 
but that can be very confronting if you view your discipline as an elite discipline or you view your own personal success as I'm at the top because I made it through. It's very uncomfortable to think, wow, 95% of people could have done this if they had just had the right structure. And I've made my peace with that, but not everybody has. Yeah, it's kind of related to a point Boz made earlier about our students have been, been going through this for 13 to 15 years. Well, faculty members, you're a product of this system for even longer time. Yeah, we're. I know it wasn't a alternative grading, but it was at a conference for PLCs, which is another thing I'm a huge, huge um, proponent of. And I've done a lot of trainings both to learn and to teach on this, but that was one of their points is we're the ones that succeeded through this model. Of course it makes sense and seems like it should be the model for everyone. We're the ones who succeed. So how do all these traditions keep going? Well, yeah, the ones that are doing it are the ones that were successful in it. So sure, it makes sense to us, but we're not everybody, <laughs> especially when it comes to the STEM and the mathematics. <laughs> not everyone made it through those courses. So if you could write a, a wish list of research you'd like to see done in the next five to 10 years, what would you like to see us try to get done? Because the people who listen to this podcast might be the ones who get this done. So one thing I've kind of alluded to this earlier is I'd like to see some really, really rich qualitative studies done with students and really, really digging into their perspective about how this helps them. Um, and not necessarily just in the moment of the course, but more longitudinal kinds of things. I'd really like to hear from students down the road, like, hey, your crazy calculus professor back in the day did this thing. Does that even register with you? Did that help you? Do we actually see any long-term impact there um, on how you think about things like learning? So I think that's one big area I'd like to see some things. Um, that's hard. These, these really deep qualitative things take take time and expertise. And then if we start talking about longitudinal things, Sharon, you've already seen this trying to, to track some of your engineering students between classes. It's very difficult to get participants to, to stay with a long study like that. But I, I think it'd be really helpful in terms of, as we were talking earlier about making these kinds of arguments to different groups of stakeholders about why this can be helpful to students. Yeah, I, and I would agree with you, Drew. I think that is would be the ultimate research is to get some of that longevity data, um, especially that could bridge the transition from the K-12 to the higher ed world. I can't even fathom how to try to do that. But if, if I had a research genie, that would, <laughs> that would definitely be my first thing. Because we saw in our little SLAM program, which is where Sharona, you and I met, we saw some of that success with our students. The rate of our students going to college compared to the rate from students at my school, the matriculation from year one to year two, we saw huge, huge numbers, well above what we have from the students at my school as a general population. But once it got after year two, we were able to track it and keep up with some and get four and six year graduations. But there was so much promising data there. That would be, like I said, if I had my research genie, that, that would be my wish one, two, three, and four. Well, and the other piece of information we got out of that program was the I would call it shocking success of students who failed. Mm -hmm. So we had students who failed in our SLAM class, still went to college and had higher rates of success in college, even having failed our course, like the course better prepared them. So I am curious, I've always wanted to, and I'm beginning to get this data. It's not perfect, but my program is so big that I have institutional research giving me tracking data. And so I was able to recently do a data analysis that showed that my students in my statistics program compared to another program at our institution and compared to the general population took, even though our statistics course is a, is a true GE, it's not an intro stats, although it uses intro stats material, but it's quantitative reasoning with statistics. 
students who took our course took the subsequent statistics courses at a higher rate and passed them at a higher level than both the, the students in the other course and the students in general. And so that was some pretty powerful data for me. Simultaneously, we also saw some data that both students who passed and students who failed persisted in college longer than other courses. So I've got some data that it'll be interesting to see if it's something that's publishable. It it is significant and it's census level data. It's not sample data, right? Because it's everyone who took our course because we're going based on when did they take it? Did they pass it? And what are they doing now? Have they taken another course? How'd they do there? So this is all, this is not sampling data. This is census data essentially within our institution. So we're in the middle of, of digging into that analysis, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. So why don't you think it's publishable? I don't know that I have, none of this was done under like IRB or anything. So I kind of have to just do some research to find out what we're allowed to do with this data. Cause it's very internal, but it's all, yeah, but if it's, if it's, it's already been collected, exempt. yeah. Yeah. You can do a retrospective. Um, exactly. Exempt. So first I just wanted to see if it was interesting. And now that I know it's interesting, I'm going to go down the route of pursuing, okay, can I get this data permissions? And and again, it's all aggregate level data. So I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be, but there's That's a why lot. That's why I asked, like, why are you not publishing this, right? This, uh, this just because I only did the analysis four <laughs> weeks ago and I haven't had time. That's <laughs> like, really, it, I just got the data. <laughs> I didn't even know I had the data until about four weeks ago. So Give me, give me a few months to, to figure this out. But uh, it's interesting. And, I, and we haven't run the full statistics. It's been more me texting Boz. Hey, I have these two ratios. Can you check if they're significant? Like, it's not actually in shape yet. But uh, yeah, it's going to be some good stuff. So again, defining success, that's another level, right? Because you've got your DFW rates. But what about choosing to take a, an additional statistics course? Because when our students take this course... We have no idea. They have no idea if they're going to need to or want to take another statistics course because it's literally anyone who doesn't have to take calculus can take this course or I mean, anyone could take it, but the, the ones who have to take calculus tend to take pre-calc instead. But it's anyone who doesn't have to take calculus can take this course regardless of major. So why are people taking the subsequent course and they're clearly doing better? So it's just very interesting data, but it's just this massive data dump that dumped on me recently. And I'm just learning how to do some of my spreadsheets on it. So it's very cool, but that's also data we could do. Could be interesting. I was just going to say that I think another really good research direction will be looking into some of this persistence within the major kinds of questions. Is this actually helping students stay in their major and succeed in what they declared as their major? Is that some measure of what students success is? They come to college to get a degree in this major they decide. Are we actually helping them do that or in fields like math like ours we have a terrible history of pushing students out of the major right uh, we also do that in, in ways that make our profession much wider and much more male right um, so yeah be curious to see if there's any evidence that this is uh, being ameliorate that in well and we have some of that data for the statistics class that challenges We did two things at once. There was this huge redesign that was due to removing remedial mathematics and structuring in support classes. And at the same time, my course, we went ahead with the standards base. So we're seeing improvements across the board due to the removal of remediation and the support courses. And then on top of that, we have that. So disaggregating which of the two, it's a home run success. And at the same time, it's a, what have you done for us lately? So it's a little frustrating, not going to lie. If Deans, if you're listening to me, because I think one of my deans does, you've heard me say this before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so trying to figure out which part is due to which is, is definitely a challenge. So I think we're coming up close to time. Is there any other things that you want to share? What are you doing next? Are, do you want to continue to do some of this research? Or are you going to do more back in your, your own mathematics research? Like, cause you're what an algebraist or something. Uh, yeah, I guess on, on paper, I'm an algebraic geometer. Um, no, I, I mostly moved away from that to, to focusing on, um, education research and things these days. Um, 
but with my position or lack of position, I'm not teaching at a university. I don't have a nice collection of students that I can do these things with. So I haven't been working on this currently. It's definitely something I'd love to get back to if the right opportunity um, comes along. Boz, any further questions for or thoughts for Drew? No, just wanted, as always, thank you for coming on. I more so than Sharona, I love the research end and I love having these research heavy conversations. So I'm glad you agreed to come back on and get into some of the weeds with us. So thank you. And I am sure we will have you, probably you and maybe one of the other conference organizers on when we get closer to the grading conference dates to come on or maybe afterwards to come on and kind of talk about that as well next time. Speaking of which, and if you're still listening at the end of the thing, registration's open for this year's conference. I think that's the first time we've said it on the pod. So oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll have to say it at the top of the show next time. But anyways, yes, and Drew, thank you. You and, and Stephen have been such an inspiration. And who knew where that 2019 or 18 Bath Fest in Denver was going to lead us all, right? So thank you to MAA for having MathFest and and bringing us all together. And no, they're not a sponsor. I'd totally take them as a sponsor, but they're not. (laughs) All right. Any final thoughts, Drew? No. Okay. Boz, anything? No. We'll see you guys next time. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the contact us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website. The views expressed here are those of the host and our guest. These views are not necessarily endorsed by the Cal State System or by the Los Angeles Unified School District.